a knock on our door. Come and knock on our door. We've been waiting for you. We've been waiting for you. Where the kisses are hers and hers and his. Three's company too. On September 11, 2003, John Ritter, the popular star from countless television shows and movies, was rehearsing some scenes on the Disney lot in Burbank, California for Eight Simple Rules for Dating My Teenage Daughter. The popular show had been renewed for a second season, and the future seemed very bright for the 54-year-old who'd spent many years searching for his next big hit after the eight-season run as Jack Tripper on the wildly successful Three's Company. It was his daughter Stella's fifth birthday, but the consummate professional was there on set doing what he loved most. Ritter was known for being a jovial presence on set, cracking up his co-stars with his impeccable comedic timing, and keeping the vibes light and loose on set with his genuinely warm and paternal presence. On this day, however, he suddenly felt very, very ill. He began sweating profusely, vomiting, and complaining of chest pain. Ritter was rushed across the street to Providence St. Joseph Medical Center around 6 o'clock p.m. and initially treated by emergency room physicians for a heart attack. But although the actor was in good physical health for his age, his condition continued to worsen. Ritter was rushed to emergency surgery, mouthing I love you to his wife, Amy Yazbek. She mouthed the same words back as Ritter was wheeled away on a gurney. It was the last time she'd see her husband alive. I'm Derek Kaufman. I'm Jason Beckerman. And this is Last Days, John Ritter. When Ritter was taken to the hospital around 6 p.m., emergency room doctors immediately ordered a battery of tests, including a chest x-ray that was never actually performed, more on that in a minute, to determine the cause of his distress. As mentioned, he had been sweating profusely, vomiting, and complaining of chest pains. He reported feeling faint as well. And so to address the system, he was initially administered aspirin and anti-nausea medication, Aspirin, of course, is commonly administered when a person is suffering from a heart attack or what people might think is a heart attack. The reason is that aspirin is a blood thinner. So if there's an obstruction or just a thickening of the walls of the blood vessels, thinning out a person's blood can help maintain blood flow. There are, however, risks that came into play in this case with aspirin because the thinning effect can also mean that a person's blood does not clot effectively when aspirin is in the bloodstream. So if you're trying to stop bleeding, aspirin can actually hinder the healing process and exacerbate an existing hemorrhage. So the cardiologist on call at the hospital was this man named Dr. Joseph Lee. So around 7.15 p.m., about an hour and 15 minutes after he was rushed to the hospital, Dr. Lee looks at the results from some of the tests that have been run and determined that Ritter's symptoms were consistent with a heart attack. So Dr. Lee ordered additional anticoagulants, again, a standard treatment for a heart attack, and also ordered a cardiac catheterization. So a cardiac catheterization is where they take this sort of thin, flexible tube, they put it into your blood vessel, and they run it through the heart to diagnose any conditions. They're actually taking a look inside the vessels so that they can see if there's any clogged arteries, diagnose whether there's irregular heartbeat. With the information, the doctors can then administer the most appropriate treatment for the patient. So during the procedure, it's discovered that Ritter was actually suffering from a tear in his aorta. In medical jargon, this is known as aortic dissection. So once they discovered that he was suffering from a tear in the aorta, it became very clear that instead of receiving life-saving treatments with the aspirin and the other anticoagulants, Ritter's condition was given drugs that actually worsened the symptoms. 
uh, once he got to the hospital. Anticoagulants are great to promote blood flow, as we noted, around a blockage, but they are disastrous when you actually need the blood to clot and patch the hole in your ruptured arterial wall. Without the ability to clot effectively, Ritter started going downhill very, very quickly, and he was eventually pronounced dead at around 10.48 p.m. No autopsy was ever performed. So news of Ritter's death spreads very quickly, and his co-stars were really thunderstruck. They had no idea when he was on set that day that he was feeling ill, that there was anything really serious about the condition. Um, Kelly Cuoco, who was just 17 years old at the time and played Ritter's teenage daughter in Eight Simple Rules long before her days on The Bing Bang Theory, described the last time she saw John as he was leaving for the hospital that day. Hi, I go, are you okay? I heard you're sick. He goes, I'm okay. I just want to talk to you for a second. I was like, okay. And he sat down on the couch. He goes, I love you. And I was like, I love you too, silly man. He goes, no, I want you to know I love you. I said, I love you too. He goes, that's it. And he gave me a hug. And that was the last I saw of him. This is actually something that Ritter would say to each of his cast members often before every show. He would always tell them that he loved him. He leaned so easily into the American Dad phase of his career after becoming iconic in the late 70s as a brilliant physical comedian and consummate ladies' man on Three's Company. And even though Eight Simple Rules was his last show, his best-remembered television show was and always will be Three's Company. So naturally, everyone wanted to hear from his co-stars Joyce DeWitt and Suzanne Summers who spoke about the last time they talked to Ritter during a reunion show several years after he passed away. DeWitt recalled Ritter reaching out to her during a promotional tour for Eight Simple Rules and described what would be their final night out on the town. And as I'm walking out the door, the phone rings, and I pick it up, and it's Jonathan. He goes, baby, we got three parties and a dinner to do tonight. Pick you up at 7. And I went, wait a minute, what's the dress code? And he goes, nice casual. And I went, okay. <laughs> so you went so out that night? We did. We oh, how fun. And did all that, of these things. It was no, so delicious. No, was that delicious. the last time you saw him? Mm -hmm. And a month later, mm. he passed. Wow. Summers, who said she turned down a cameo on Eight Simple Rules and seemed to regret the decision, didn't hold back on her praise for Ritter's gifts. He, he uh, I think, is the greatest physical comic of our era, for it's sure. Really I used to watch him. And his legs were like made of rubber. Mm -hmm. And um, the way he would flip over the couch. His physical response mechanism. Yeah. He would hear a piece of humor, and intuitively his entire body had already responded right. before anything came out of his mouth. Right. The he had beauty a yeah. of that. He had a way of, of moving mm -hmm. you around that, mm -hmm. for me, it made me more of a physical comic than mm -hmm. I really was. Um, I, 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 I loved working with him, as I know you did, too. John Ritter's widow, Amy Yazbeck, who we mentioned previously, had a private funeral for him on September 15, 2003. He was buried at the very famous Forest Lawn Cemetery in the Hollywood Hills. A lot of celebrities are buried there. And in a fitting tribute, the memorial service began with a somber remembrance of Ritter, but ended up turning into this gigantic, joyous celebration. There was a hundred-piece marching band, full USC regalia, marching down Hollywood Boulevard. Really gave you a sense that this was a beloved actor, but also a beloved comedic presence. Right. So they didn't want to have the affair be sort of downtrodden. It wasn't like when maybe James Gandolfini, who played very serious, dramatic roles, passes, and you can imagine a, a sort of downbeat affair. This was truly a celebration of life. I actually went to a funeral really recently, and the USC marching band played, and 
it changes the tenor of a funeral instantly. It does. It lifts now, your spirits, in right? In the one that I went to, it didn't march all the way down Hollywood Boulevard. It sure. was just at the, <laughs> at the chapel. But nevertheless, I, it, it really brings a sort of levity and enjoyment to an otherwise completely somber. Uh, absolutely. So Yazbek, to her credit, has worked tirelessly since Ritter's death to prevent exactly this kind of situation in the future. She created what's called the John Ritter Foundation for Aortic Health. Uh, she says the work she's done has actually helped save other family members on John's side of the family because there may actually be a genetic predisposition to aortic dissection. You may have sort of weaker arterial walls and could actually be more susceptible to this type of injury inside your body. John's brother, Tom, actually had an aneurysm a couple years after John passed away, and doctors were able to repair his aortic arch, the sort of the way the aorta comes off the heart to prevent a rupture from ever happening and sort of saved his life in a lot of people's thoughts. Uh, Yazbek has said, has said all of the family now gets scanned, all the first degree relatives, and it's never going to sneak up on us. It's something repairable and preventable. So in the wake of his death, Ritter's family, including his widow, Amy Yazbek and his children filed a $67 million wrongful death lawsuit against the medical facilities and doctors who cared for Ritter arguing that they failed to render appropriate care to address his ruptured aorta and ended up actually exacerbating the condition in the ways we talked about earlier. It's an eye-popping number, $67 million. I mean, he was a sitcom star, but that was a huge dollar amount. Well, they actually based it, apparently, on how much they felt that he would earn simply from eight simple rules. Ritter was earning $75,000 per episode in the first season, but there were these 5% bumps each year, plus back-end participation. The studio behind it, Touchstone, uh, an executive there said in a deposition that Ritter would have earned between $250,000 and $300,000 per episode under a new contract plus a share of syndication profits. We saw this about this time, right, where you start, start to see the Friends cast starts to get these million-dollar uh, an episode fees. Uh, Kelsey Grammer playing Frasier was getting the million dollars. This show wasn't that big. No. But it would certainly, it was at least sort of a quarter or as half as big. That's why they're getting this $250,000 to $300,000 number. In, in the age of streaming, you don't see these numbers That's anymore. Right. This is the high watermark of network television. Even though Eight Simple Rules was no Seinfeld, it was no Friends, it was big enough that he would have earned these six-figure paydays per episode per episode you yeah. just don't see that anymore in, the, in streaming the, shows the, these shows uh, network television shows back in this time period the early 2000s certainly before that typically it was a 22 episode season so you do the math and that's what friends would have been for example so if you do the math at a million dollars an episode it's very easy it's about 22 million dollars a year here it's about a quarter of that so you're talking about uh what six five six million dollars per year that he would earn just from the show alone. And then you get the back-end participation on top of that. That's how you get up to this. Uh, that's how, well, how the family said they got up to this $67 million number. Uh, Yazbek, more than the money, was very vocal about wanting justice, saying at the time, you can't treat my kid's dad for something and kill him in the process. I think the money will show how angry the jury will be about what happened to John and what could happen to them. Lawyers for the doctors, however, you know, they respond, they have the defense, and they said, I really, really believe that for whatever reason, John Ritter's time was up. Now, a quick note before we get into the arguments that were in this lawsuit, the hospital that he was treated at is a hospital named Providence St. Joseph Medical Center. It's not the only time you're going to hear that on one of our episodes, just a preview in the future. Other celebrities have passed away and had issues with the level of treatment that they received at that yeah, hospital. The, the hospital's in Burbank, right? Yes. And Burbank, obviously, I'm sure most people know this, is sort of the, the epicenter of the studio system, right? All the studios are located there. Warner Brothers is located there. Disney's right nearby and on and on. So when people do, and a lot of celebs live near there as well. And so when you have incidents involving celebrities, a lot of time this is the hospital of choice. That's exactly right. 
Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including Ray-Ban, Good American, and Ulta. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals. During Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th, the cash back rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for apparel and electronics, and you can save on everything you need for the summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Just go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. Rakuten, R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. So during this litigation, there were two major arguments that were laid out uh, as to why they should be paid this $67 million over John's death. First, Ritter had actually been treated two years before his death and had received no warning about an enlarged aorta. He was given a full body CT scan by a company called HealthScan America, and the company was supposed to look for abnormalities just like this. The doctor told him at the time that he was at a risk for blocked coronary arteries, sort of heart disease type conditions, but said nothing about his aorta being enlarged or anything of the nature that would lead to him to believe that there was a risk of this sort of dissection injury. So the, the argument they're setting up, right, is we did everything by the book here. We had no no family history, no knowledge of this individual having a history with uh, with this kind of issue that 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 would cause his death eventually. Ultimately, what they said is, look, we thought it was, uh, you know, he needed blood thinners at the time. We thought he was having a coronary. And this is the, the prescribed medication in the first instance is the thinning medications. How were we supposed to know he had this condition? As a matter of fact, nobody had known despite this health care, this, this heart screening that he previously had. That's right. So you can see how the doc doctors would yeah. use this precise information to make their case for them. And, and indeed, the doctor and other witnesses said, you know, Ritter was advised to consult a cardiologist for a more fulsome examination or an internist, but he actually never followed right. up. So he does do this scan, but never follows up. And the doctors are saying, how are we supposed to know even this high-tech right. scan right. couldn't And his family is now, his, his widow said, his family now gets scanned for this, gets fully screened for this. Well, he had the option to do that and didn't do it. So that's what the argument of the doctors is. That's exactly right. So second, the Ritter family focused on two significant problems with the care that Ritter received on the day of his death. Uh, first, a misdiagnosis due to the failure to perform the routine diagnostic procedures that were ordered that day. Um, and a treatment regimen that probably made the problem worse, almost certainly made the problem worse. So on the first instance, the chest X-ray that had been ordered as soon as he gets to the hospital a little after 6 p.m., was never actually done, as we mentioned before. That's a bad fact, right, Jason, yeah, for, for the, the doctors, doctors, because you come in and you want to get the diagnostic tools that you need to render and order the appropriate level of care. They actually thought they needed an X-ray to determine what exactly was the problem they were facing. Um, they order it, but it doesn't get done. The doctors are going to say, look, in the fog of his uh, distress, we can only do so much. You have to care for the patient as he comes in and as he's presenting vomiting, chest pains, faintness. You can't always order all of the tests that you actually need. You just have to care for the symptoms right. that you're looking at. Right. So that that was also sort of difficult for the family. Secondly, and I think this is the the, the toughest argument that was made, is 
he was misdiagnosed at the end of the day with a heart attack. So the blood thinners and the anticoagulants given to him exacerbated the condition. And there's no doubt about that. Even though an autopsy wasn't performed, an aortic dissection is made worse by blood thinners. There's just no doubt about that. And his condition would have actually perhaps maybe improved just by not giving him medication. Yeah. Uh, maybe the, the arch would have been able to repair itself. And they made a lot of hay out of this. They had their own experts who said, look, yes, you can have these dissections. They can sometimes heal themselves. And he may not have passed away, but they actually hastened his death. But then we're going to get into it here. It, it, again, the doctors have what limited information they have, and they have to make the best assessment they can in that moment. You don't That's have right. time to wait. You have to make the best assessment you can. And you know, you have stats to show that more likely than not, it, it, would it, they, they, more likely than not, it is a heart attack in these situations. That's right? right. I mean, doctors see this all the time. We, we trust their professional judgment. Can they make mistakes? Yes, but they're not entrusted with having perfect judgment all the time. They right. see, Many of the doctors came up there and said, look, we had to stabilize this patient. The symptoms he was presenting are consistent right. with a heart attack as well. We did make the wrong call, but that's very different from us being liable for that but call. But you had the one doctor who testified that patients experiencing chest pains are about 100 times more likely to be suffering a heart attack than an aortic dissection. So the great idea fact that, for the doctors, right? The idea that the doctor is going to see this come in and say, well, despite the fact that the it's a hundred to one chance, it's, it's, it's a heart attack. I'm going to nevertheless not give them the right medicine for that. That just doesn't add up. That's what a doctor's going to do every time. Exactly. Right? And they were, they were saying, look, if we order this chest x-ray and rather than uh, treat the symptoms that he's presenting with, he could die while getting the right. chest x-ray. We have saved to 20 him. patients by giving him aspirin. We lost this one patient by giving him aspirin. Where, where do you want from a risk manager, risk tolerance, risk benefit analysis, where do you want to come down on that, right? Yeah. Give aspirin to everybody would seem to be the way you'd go, although it didn't work out for John Ritter and his family, and you understand why they're so upset about it. It's exactly right. You can imagine in, in, in court, too, John Ritter it was a beloved figure in yeah. Hollywood. His grieving widow is there. That is going to be very sort of impactful on a jury, regardless of whether the doctors had some good arguments in response. So in the end, the family settles with the hospital and eight members of the medical staff. Um, with Ritter and each of his children reportedly receiving around $14 million each, including $9.4 million from Providence St. Joseph Medical Center in Burbank. Now, the two other physicians, a radiologist and a cardiologist, actually took the case to trial in February 2008, and they won the jury verdict. They got a jury verdict in their favor, and it's precisely for the reasons we were talking about. You were uh, a, a litigator before this, often on the defense side. The way I looked at this case was this is a terrible, terrible tragedy, but that's a far cry from holding doctors responsible uh, in a monetary sense for John Ritter's death. I actually don't think this is maybe a terrible verdict, even though to a lot of the listening audience who who aren't you know lawyers, it might sound like tough. Medicine. I think there's a there's a misconception out there that whenever anybody dies during a medical procedure or because of a medical procedure doctors and hospitals end up paying through the nose for it. And the, the truth is very different. The truth is it is exceptionally hard to win a medical malpractice lawsuit. And the system is set up to protect doctors for the very reasons we're talking about. When there are instances where a doctor acts recklessly or clearly in negligence or clearly disregards evidence or information that's available to them, you can get go through with a medical malpractice suit. You can win large judgments. But the vast, vast, vast majority of the time, what you're finding are that doctors act with all the knowledge they have in the best possible way, tend to be, give the best possible care that they know how to give. And it turns out that the that what was happening within the person's body was a little bit different than they anticipated. That does not mean the doctor did anything wrong. It just means that they see a lot of patients, nine, 999 times out of 1,000, it's the perfect medication, the perfect remedy for what ails them. Once in a while, they don't know exactly what's happening, and it ends up doing more harm than good. 
That doesn't mean the doctor did anything wrong. It doesn't mean they're liable. It just means that in this one instance, it didn't work out. Right. You're 100% right. And in a long-term perspective of that profession, you want doctors not acting scared. That's right. Imagine you want them if, making decisive imagine decisions. Imagine if every doctor said, the person presenting is a heart attack, but I'm going to order an aortic uh, test of the aorta before I administer any medication. Again, you're going to end up losing more patients than you save if you do that. It's so exactly you've got to balance right. those things. So John Ritter, born on September 17th, 1948, at the, as you mentioned earlier, the very same hospital at which he dies, St. Joseph's. He was destined for acting right from the start. His father, Tex Ritter, actually pretty well known in his own right, yeah. uh, singing cowboy, best known for his rendition of the Ballad of High Noon, sung over the opening credits in the film High Noon, where he later sang at the Oscars in 1952. And the song actually won Best Original Song at the uh, 53 Academy Awards. Do not forsake me, oh my darling. I used to love those old Western I was gonna, songs. I was gonna they make were a, so specific. I was going to make a joke about you having that on your playlist now, <laughs> but it might actually be true. It is true. I love that song. <laughs> His mother, John's mother, mother uh, Dorothy Faye, was an actress mainly in B-grade Westerns, but also had a small part in the Philadelphia story with Cary Grant and Jimmy Stewart and Catherine Hepburn. She passed away in November 2003, just two months after the death of John. John was charismatic, popular from the start. He was student body president at Hollywood High School and ended up going to USC, as we talked about where he first majored in psychology and planned for a career in politics before pivoting to the theater arts, and he never looked back. Given his Hollywood pedigree and his obvious talent, he landed roles right out of college in the early 70s, making guest appearances on Hawaii Five-0 and MASH and The Waltons. And then in 77, he gets his big break on ABC's Three's Company, which uh, is an Americanized version of a British show, actually, called Man About the House. Something I did not know until you uh, did the research for the podcast. Good, good piece job. of trivia, huh? I like that. So Three's Company, and Jason, this is your era. This was yep. a ratings juggernaut. I mean, for lack of a better word, it dominated the airwaves for uh, its early part of its season run, certainly. Ran for eight total seasons. It ranked in the top 10 for six of them. It was a simple, if somewhat outdated by today's standards, premise. Ritter played. You think so? You think just, it's outdated by today's oh, standards? Oh, interesting. Maybe today's standards have looped back. I think they to, might have. I was actually making a joke, but making a joke, but I think it has looped back around. Get, and, you know, I didn't even think so of that. I didn't even it. think about that. But Ritter plays uh, Jack Tripper, who's a culinary student. He has two female roommates. They were played by Joyce DeWitt and Suzanne Summers. It centers around Jack pretending to be a gay man in order to allay the concerns of these old-fashioned landlords about the co-ed living arrangements. He plays the role absolutely perfectly. He extracts comedy from all the wacky situations uh, where, in this one that we have a clip of, he's rubbing lotion on a woman in a bikini who he's clearly interested in, but she feels very comfortable because she thinks a gay man is rubbing the lotion on her. Jack! Oh, hey, what do you think of my new beach sandals? In that bikini, nobody in his right mind is even going to notice your sandals. In school, I used to do this for the girls' swim team at $20 a week. $20? Yeah, that's all I could afford. <laughs> <laughs> so he's just sort of so gifted at this because there were a lot of scenes like this, and look them up if you have any time, where... 
he would sort of not be breaking the fourth wall, but kind of like speaking to the audience while the other person didn't know what was going on mm. in the scene. And he just did that sort of brilliantly. It was, the, the, I gotta tell you, the show itself, uh, it was a little, I'm a little young for it, but I used to watch it in reruns all the time, as did all my friends. And in middle school, this was sort of the thing, the show that everybody would quote. You know, it was, yeah. we all knew lines from it. We all know who very familiar with Mr. Roper, the landlord, and Jack and Chrissy and the whole, the whole gang. And this was, this was the show that everybody talked about. It absolutely was. So the show sort of started to fall apart when the original women were replaced. Although Ritter himself parlayed its success into his own spinoff, it called Three's a Crowd, which lasted even a year after after the show went off the air. From there, Ritter worked consistently and even got nominated for an Emmy for his role as the titular detective on the show Hooperman, and then spent three seasons on Hearts of Fire, but neither show came close to the ratings of Three's Company. For people of a certain age, he'll always be the dad from the first two Problem Child movies in the early 90s. You remember this? Right? This is my childhood. Yeah. So, so Problem Child were these movies with this little redhead who'd cause all sorts of shenanigans, sort of capitalizing on the, the fame of Macaulay Culkin at the time. Macaulay and, and the Home Alone movies were so big that there were these kind of knockoffs. And this was one of the bigger ones where yeah. the kid would sort of light people on fire and so forth, cause all sorts of hijinks. Yeah. And he was the doting father. Actually, the mother on the on those on those movies was Amy Yazbek. Who so turned into so they meet on the show. They they fall in love and and uh, get married in real life. He also turned into memorable performances in Sling Blade with Billy Bob Thornton and really cemented his status as someone who could deliver on the big screen. His first love was always television, so landing the role as Paul Hennessy on Eight Simple Rules and getting the show picked up for a second season was a fitting conclusion to his legendary TV career. So because John worked steadily throughout his life, there was a final posthumous release even uh, that would really become, to me, his signature performance in the later stage of his career. I didn't really watch Eight Simple Rules. I knew it was a popular television show at the time, but I did see Bad Santa. Bad Santa has become a holiday classic. It's one of the most ribald comedies that you can you can watch. It's uh, got Billy Bob Thornton, who he had been in Sling Blade with, and Billy Bob got to know him and thought, this guy's not only got sort of dramatic chops, he's got comedic chops. So right. I'm going to have him play this role as the store manager, um, Bob Chapeska in Bob Bad Santa. It's just one of the best holiday movies because you had to com- convey both mild condescension and discomfort of middle management guy trying to explain to the head of security about this guy who's playing Santa doing all of these nasty things in front of kids. A couple of days ago, I was in uh, Women's Big and Tall, and uh, I heard these... <clears throat> um, you know, these noises. And I heard a woman screaming, yeah, oh yeah. And I heard his voice saying, that's right, you ain't going to SHIT right for a month. It's so it's so good. It's one of the best best. Not sure we should really laugh that hard coming out of that clip, but it was <laughs> I'm sorry. Look, this is a celebration of John Ritter's life, and that was one of the most important performances of his career. So what's the counterfactual here, Derek? I mean, we always do this, right? What would have happened had John Ritter not died on that faithful day? Look, I I think, to be fair, John Ritter was never going to capture a role bigger than Jack Tripper. That was the role of his life. He absolutely slays it. But what I think is interesting about him is how much range he showed later in his career, because he could have just been a slapstick physical comedian, had a bunch of, you know, sort of cameo parts. But he does this role in Sling Blade uh, where he really shows that he can take a dramatic turn. Uh, he has acting chops. And I thought that was really interesting because he was able to both do dramatic roles um, without ever leaving his bread and butter comedy like that Santa. Well, I think comedy is where he would have ended up. Right. I mean, he may have continued to take dramatic roles from time to time, but he was a 
really talented physical comedian and a really talented comedian more generally. And, you, you know, you made the point, I think it's right, that he sort of fits perfectly into the Judd Apatow world, right? He's certainly capable of filthy kinds of comedy. We just heard about that. You just heard a little clip of that Should there. we play it again? No. <laughs> I think we're good for, for the month, actually. <laughs> Um, but you know, he, I, th I think that he would have really lended himself nicely into the, sort of the, the 21st century era of comedies. It got really sort of filthy and gross, but hysterically funny. I think he would have been right at home. I those. think that's right. Apatow is sort of a contemporary rough contemporary with someone like John Ritter. He has a real fondness for those 70 shows. Yeah. You could see him sort of grabbing Ritter and putting him in something like the 40 year old virgin, not, not necessarily replacing Steve Carell, but being one of the buddies yeah. or something at one of the, I just miss that. We didn't get to see that. Yeah. That phase of his career. Where and obviously his son, Jason Ritter, is now a very successful actor. It would have been nice had the two of them sort of LeBron James style, right? Eventually yeah. acted in their in their show together. You could have seen that happening. It would have sure. been a fitting conclusion. And, and, and that's really the most tragic thing about John Ritter's death. He passed away just as he was enjoying his long-awaited comeback to primetime television and some genuine joy in his personal life. He had a young daughter. It was her birthday the, the day he passed. And the timing of his death really just robbed him of the ability to see his son Jason emerge as a promising talent in Hollywood to carry on the family's legacy. And it really seems most fitting to give the final word to Jason himself. I never felt like I was jealous that I had to share him with the world. One of the things that I tried to do was look at his life. Instead of feeling like I was reading this beautiful book and all of a sudden the last 10 chapters were ripped out, I started to look at it as that was the whole book. That's the whole story. And what's the beauty in that? And there was so much beauty in his life.